we are in chapter 14 in 2 Samuel as we are making our way through here. Let me just set the scene for where we've been. Certainly, if you were a Hollywood producer, this would be not too bad of a script. Uh, Amnon raped Absalom's sister. King David uh, got angry, but that's all. Absalom had his brother Amnon killed for doing so. David mourned. Absalom went into exile for three years. And David is longing for his son Absalom to return right now. And that's where the soap opera stops. So let's backtrack a verse back into chapter 13, verse 39. It says, And King David longed to go to Absalom. For he had been comforted concerning Amnon because he was dead, but neither one of these two men wanting to surrender, Absalom and David. So Joab, the son of Zariah, perceived that the king's heart was concerned about Absalom. Joab, another cousin, remember Joe Badnab from last week? He was a cousin. Well, Joab, being another cousin and being a man of action, came up with the plan. So verse 2 is the plan. And Joab, playing politician, maybe playing general because it's better to have your enemies up close than far away, playing comforter, sent to Tico and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, please pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning apparel. Do not anoint yourself with oil, but act like a woman who has been mourning a long time for the dead. So that's the play. Go to the king and speak to him in this manner. So Joab put the words in her mouth. That's the legal plot. You can always appeal an earlier decision by someone to the king. We certainly see Paul doing that as he appealed to Caesar. And so when the woman of Tico, she's the actress, spoke to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and prostrated herself and said, help, O king. Then the king said to her, out of compassion and mercy for this widowed woman, this elderly woman, what troubles you? And she answered, indeed, I am a widow. My husband is dead. Now, your maidservant had two sons, and the two fought with each other in the field, and there was no one to part them, but the one struck the other and killed him. And now the whole family has risen up against your maidservant, and they said, deliver him who struck his brother, as she's acting like she's protecting her only remaining son. And we read all about the Avenger of Blood thing back in the book of Numbers. Remember the whole city's a refuge? That's what this woman is pleading her case about. Because the man had no, her son had no right to go into the one, one of those cities. And so she's coming and she's pleading her case based upon that. And she says, they said, deliver him who struck his brother that we may execute him for the life of his brother whom he killed and we will destroy the heir also. So that was the plot. You know, if they kill my son, they're going to kill the only remaining heir I have left as Joab seeks to do what Nathan did with David about the lamb Bathsheba thing, if you remember all that. So they would extinguish my only ember that is left if they kill my only son and leave to my husband neither name nor remnant on the earth. In other words, King David, if you don't do something quick, there will be no one to take my husband's name forward. His name will just die off. So she's pleading with him outside of the law, but pleading based upon family and sympathy and maybe old age. And so the king said to the woman, go to your house and I will give orders concerning you. Well, this is definitely not 100% of what she wanted. 
but their decision was moving in the right direction as she really sets the hook in on the king and prepares to reel him in. She got the king moving outside the law and now set, seeking to settle the case on the merits of family and mercy alone. But she needed more because this wasn't all she is looking for. She wanted David to give a firm judgment on her case right now, not if something happened down the road. So the woman of Tico, not willing to be denied, said to the king, My lord, O king, let the iniquity be on me and on my father's house, and the king and his throne be guiltless. So the king said, Whoever says anything to you, bring him to me, and bring him to me, and he shall not touch you anymore. And so again, there, she's getting a little bit more, but she doesn't get what she's looking for in this soap opera performance. If someone gives you a hard time, send them to me, and I'll take care of them, is what David says. But that's not what she's looking for. She wanted a judgment for her son now. Verse 11 in 2 Samuel 14. Then she said, please let the king remember the Lord your God and do not permit the avenger of blood to destroy anymore. That's what the law declared, lest they destroy my son. And the avenger of blood is, pro avenger of blood is probably an uncle, would be my first guess in this made-up story, or a cousin, definitely a close relative. And the king said, as the Lord lives... Not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. And that is exactly what she wanted. This is what she was hoping for, shopping for, that the king would make a vow to her outside of the law that her son would be protected and not slain. Because remember, Absalom needs to die. Okay, he, he, he took innocent blood. Yes, Amnon was guilty, and that needed to be dealt with. But Absalom was a murderer, and so now she's gotten the king outside of the law, and she's got him to say what she was looking for, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. And that is exactly what the woman was trying to get out of the king. Verse 12 is going to explain why, as the plot that Joab told this woman thickens. Therefore the woman said, please, let your maidservant speak another word to my lord the king, and he said, say on. I hope we can all see she's bargaining with him. It's almost like she's fishing. She keeps setting the hook a little farther each time. Verse 13 is the another word. So the woman said, why then have you schemed such a thing against the people of God? And no doubt David looks up like, what are you talking about? For the king speaks this thing as one who is guilty and that the king does not bring his banished one home again. Busted. Now, either Joab is paying this woman a lot, or she owes him something, because this is a bold, gutsy word spoken by the old woman from Tico. This woman, or should we say Joab's words, are very slick here. She's seeking to bust the king here in her story. It was her only two sons fighting, and one died and the other didn't. And the king said that he would protect the other son, even though that son was guilty of murder. So this woman takes his same thought back to David and says, look, David, you're guilty in this, that that one son of yours, almost justifiably because the king did nothing, killed the other for raping his sister, and yet you're doing nothing in which to now restore that relationship. I mean, he is busted. However, there is one slight difference to her story, and that is the king had other sons. And like the woman storyteller said, she only had one son. So verse 14, as she teaches the king here, For we will surely die and become like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. Yet God does not take away life, but he devises means so that his banished ones are not expelled from him. But again, David didn't banish Absalom. Absalom ran for his life. So she's getting her facts a little skewed here. And yet God had provided a means in which David would not be banished for his sins if she's speaking to him about himself. Remember, 
God gave David a way out and said, hey, you will not die for your sin. But David here was unwilling to provide the same for his son. You know, you didn't die for your sin. Should he die for his sin? That's what she's fishing with. Now, therefore, I've come to speak of this thing to my Lord, the king, because the people have made me afraid. Now, I don't even know what to get of that. Interesting words by the old widow here. No one seems to mention it. And your maidservant said, I will now speak to the king. It may be that the king will perform the request of his maidservant, for the king will hear and deliver his maidservant from the hand of the man who would destroy me and my son together from the inheritance of God. Your maidservant said, The word of my lord the king will now be comforting, for as the angel of God, so is my lord the king in discerning good and evil. And may the Lord your God be with you. Well, thank you. I mean, is this not a messy rerun from when Nathan showed up a few years ago? I mean, it is. And so the, this woman finishes her performance with, the Lord will be with you, and I know you will do the right thing, David. So she settles her case. Now it's David's turn. Verse 18, she gets busted. Then the king answered and said to the woman, please do not hide from me anything that I ask you. And the woman said, oh, I've done such a magnificent performance. You'll never know it was a complete setup. And the woman said, please let my lord the king speak. So the king said, rather bluntly, is the hand of Joab with you in all this? <laughs> I don't know what the lady's thinking right now. And the woman answered and said, as you live, my lord the king, no one can turn the right hand or to the left from anything that my lord the king has spoken for your servant Joab commanded me. So maybe she could not say no. And he put all these words in the mouth of your maidservant to bring about this change of affairs. Your servant Joab has done this thing. But my lord is wise, according to the wisdom of the angel of God, to know everything that is in the earth, and a good leader should. And the king said to Joab, All right, I have granted this thing. Go, therefore, bring back the young man Absalom. So Joab stoked. That which he saw in David's heart is now coming to pass. Joab and Absalom were first cousins, and they both seemed to be rebels. And as you read ahead, you're going to discover that this same Joab that destroy that this this same Joab that disobeys David's command will end up killing the very one he sought to return right here. It's interesting. It's soap opera all over it here. You know, David, do this, you know, for your son. Sets the plot. And then as David brings the son back, the same man that said, do this for your son is going to be the one who's going to execute him. It's crazy. Verse 22. And Joab fell to the ground on his face and bowed himself and thanked the king. And Joab said, today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight, my lord, O king, and that the king has fulfilled the request of his servant. So Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. Okay, just something to think about. I don't know if Joab has ulterior motives here, but he's a general. And he's a smart general. And I wonder if he has any idea of doing this and bringing Absalom, who is now the next heir to the throne. He's the third son. Son number two. We, don't, we never hear anything of him. So Absalom would be, seem to be the rightful heir to the throne now that Amnon is dead, is dead. And I wonder if Joab is seeking to bring him close so he can keep an eye on him. If, if he does, he does a really bad job because we don't see anybody keeping an eye on Absalom in the next chapter. And the king said, let him return to his own house, but do not let him see my face. Hmm, is that bitterness? Bitterness is a tricky thing. It can be disguised in so many ways. So Absalom returned to his own house, but did not see the king's face. But why does David say this? Because Absalom hasn't repented over killing his brother? I don't know. David's 
son would be my first and only guess. But that's a bad guess. I mean, first David appears to be too soft and did nothing when his daughter was raped. Now it appears he's too harsh and does nothing again. You know, parenting has got to be lived out in the realm of a walk in the Spirit. Because in your parenting, if you, if you ain't living it out in the walk of the Spirit, man, you're going to be on too, too far of each extreme. Too little and too soft, too little and too harsh. It's got to be in the middle. Remember all David did when he found out about the rape was he got angry. He should have stepped in in the first place. And now it seems he's still angry. And yet David has experienced extreme forgiveness from God this far in his life. He had his $52 million debt paid that we read of in Jesus' parable in the merciful service and servant in Matthew chapter 18. So why is David not willing to forgive the 42 bucks here? I mean, think of all of David's sin that was wiped out. He killed, he killed, he murdered. I don't know. Certainly not a godly trait that a man after God's own heart would possess. If you're going to be a leader in the church, you have to be gracious towards others when they make mistakes or sin against you, just as God is gracious towards you when you blow it. Remember that compassionate king in Jesus' parable of the merciful servant? He was willing to forgive when the man humbled himself. Oh, and he pleaded. I mean, the man saying, I will pay you what I owe you. No, the man was never going to pay him his $52 million, no matter what. But when he humbled himself, the king was willing to forgive. And I think if you're a leader, then you'd, you'd want to do likewise, setting the example of a place of humility. Think of how you respond to your kids or the boss or the coworker when they blow it or don't meet or exceed your expectations. Do you offer them grace and mercy and compassion? That's what our father does. Or do you offer him the older brother in the prodigal son parable? That's something to think about here. What do you offer when someone shoots at you? Do you offer what Jesus offered you? I hope so. Because <laughs> if not, then there's something that's rooted in my heart that's ugly and evil that needs to get gutted out. Or as we read in the book of Ezekiel, that God took that heart of stone out of the nation of Israel and put it in a heart of flesh that could pump again and that could breathe again and that could live again. I don't, we don't want to be like David here. We don't want to be like the compassionate master in Jesus' parable in Matthew 18 and forgive. Now, I don't know if David's failing to restore leads up to the rebellion of Absalom, but I'm sure it didn't help matters. And yet there's got to be forgiveness and bitterness drifting in and out of the hearts of both of these men. Verse 25, Now in all Israel there was no one who was praised as much as Absalom for his good looks. So he, he would have been on the cover of GQ. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. He didn't have freckles, moles, nothing. This guy was a ladies' man if there was such a thing back then. And so... It's kind of a bad rerun from a previous movie right here. Who else was good looking, head and shoulders above the rest that all the people oohed and awed about? Yeah. And how well did that turn out for him? He put him into bondage. Verse 26. And when he cut the hair of his head at the end of every year, he cut it because it was heavy on him. When he cut it, he weighed the hair of his head at 200 shekels, according to the king's standard. Now, that's hair worse than wool. So, depending on who you read, it's somewhere between two and five pounds. But you know what? He should have cut it before he became king, if you know what I mean, if you've read ahead. Verse 27, To Absalom were born three sons and one daughter, whose name was Tamar. She was a woman of beautiful appearance. So Absalom named his only daughter Tamar. Obviously, I would think she's named after his sister Tamar that was raped. 
And I think that that shows he has some heart and some class at this moment. But he also has some resentment. And that's the thing about bitterness and resentment if left in, left in check. And it may start out from your perspective as righteous, but if you let it go, oh man, it will grow and it will grab a hold of you and it will cause you to make some of life's craziest decisions. And Absalom dwelt two full years in Jerusalem, but he did not see the king's face. Sad moment here. Therefore, Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king, but he would not come to him. And when, jo and when Absalom sent again the second time, he would not come. So he said to his servants, because Absalom has all his servants do his dirty work, See, Joab's field is near mine, and he has barley there. Go set it on fire. So it must have been ready for harvest, so it was really dry. And Absalom's servants set the field on fire. And then Joab arose and came to Absalom's house and said to him, Why have your servants set my field on fire? Got his attention, didn't it? I mean, can someone say crazy soap opera? It is, man, I'm telling you. I hope we can all see that there is no perfect family to grow up in. So if you use your family as an excuse, stop it, that you grew up in. You need to move on, man. Leave the past in the past. Look at this one. And yet what we find in this crazy soap opera is a man after God's own heart. God's words, not his own. Whatever you do, don't camp out in the past. That will literally take you nowhere. Absalom has now been in exile three years. Back two more years and getting restless, wanting Joab to go to the king for him. He lights a little fire to have a little conversation with Joab and Absalom answered, Joab, look, I sent to you saying, come here so that I may, that I, I may send you to the king, your dad, right? That's your dad, not the king, to say, why have I come from Geshur? It would be better for me to be there still. Now, therefore, let me see the king's face. And this is a gutsy statement. But if there is iniquity in me, let him execute me. Now, that is a bold statement spoken by a future traitor. And you might want to underline this because this is also prophetic, kind of. David says, don't kill Absalom, but he's going to get killed. So Joab went to the king and told him, and when he had called for Absalom, he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king. Notice no repentance, no humility other than bowing himself to the ground. No words exchanged. Then the king kissed Absalom. Sign of repentance? Maybe. If you can do it without words, I doubt it. Judas kissed Jesus just before he sold him out. Verse 1, chapter 15. After this, how long we don't know, it happened that Absalom provided himself this good-looking one who cuts his hair off every year and weighs it so everybody can oogle it, with chariots and horses and 50 men to run before him. Kind of looks like someone special, doesn't it? Sets all this stuff in motion. That sounds kind of like something kings would do, does it not? No doubt he has an agenda. And that agenda is he's seeking to become king. Now, you have to ask yourself here, where is David when his son is acting this way? Jerusalem isn't that big. I mean, you got 50 men and horses and chariots jamming through town. That ought to make a little dust. Where's David? Where's David's men? Was everybody blinded to it? Seems to be. Or is this a total act of God in fulfilling what Nathan had already told David? I don't know. But it sure seems like someone should have seen it and said something, see something, say something, unless God didn't want it to happen. In those days back then, court was held at the gates of the cities, but they could always appeal the ruling from someone lower to the king or the leading governing authority like we saw with Paul appealing to Caesar. 
And so where is Absalom hanging out, rubbing shoulders, plotting and scheming? At the gate, as the people are on their way to see the king. How convenient is he? Now Absalom would rise early and stand beside the way to the gate so you could conveniently walk past him, so he could kind of flick his hair like a gal maybe, I don't know. So it was whenever anyone who had a lawsuit came to the king for a decision, that Absalom would seek to undermine his father's position, would call to him and say, what city are you from? And he would say, your servant is from such and such a tribe of Israel. Then Absalom, again, seeking to undercut and undermine his dad's kingdom, would say to him, look, your case is good and right, as he'd kind of maybe pat his back and rub his shoulders. But there's no deputy of the king to hear you. Now, I don't even know if that's true. But let me say this. A Calvary distinctive, or at least something I heard at pastor's conferences for the 10 years I was an assistant pastor, is this. If you can't support what's happening where you are, then do, the, do God and the church a, a favor and just quit and get out. Because that's what Absalom needs to do here. He just needs to quit and get out. He, he needs to pack his bags and go back to his grandfather on his mother's side rather than stir up controversy. But see, failing to check his flesh will always result in what we see Absalom do here. And again, it's always the innocent sheep along the way that get ripped off. Moreover, Absalom would say, oh, that I were made judge in the land. And so he's planting seeds of dissension in the ranks of the people. And that's what bitterness does. That's what gossip does. It plants it in there, and people start to allow it to take root and follow after it. Oh, that I were made judge in the land, and everyone who has any suit or cause would come to me. Man, because I'm so loving and caring, then I would give him justice. And so it was, whenever anyone came near to bow down to him, the place of humility and honor, that he would put out his hand before he could bow down and shake it and take him and kiss him, the customary greeting, rather than being bowed down to. In this manner, Absalom, the actor, that's why it says acted, acted toward all Israel who came to the king for judgment. Again, one of David's men needed to go down there and give this growing boy a good old licking. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Now, what's interesting is, for the record, I believe David used to be this way. At least that's the way I read his life. He used to be among the people. And there's two types of pastors. There's those who are among the people, and there's those who hide themselves away in ivory towers. Well, David's no longer among the people. There's a lesson here somewhere. What you have before you, team, is the fruit of unchecked sin in Absalom's heart. This is the fruit of bitterness and resentment that was left in his heart that's like salt water left on metal. It takes some time, but eventually it will corrode the whole thing. I, you and I got to know this. Time never heals the heart. That's, that's psychology at best, the teachings of the world at worst. Forgiveness, repentance, agape love heals the heart, but never time. Now, before we move on, let's look at the slick behavior of this politician named Absalom. First off, he had the looks of a movie star, which seems to get you into office these days. He got the chariots and all to prove to the people that he was an important man, but not from any military point of view like his father. We don't read of any battle he ever fought in, and he didn't even kill Amnon, his servants did. We saw he would rise early, so he's aggressive like politicians can be in trying to get out the vote. You know, they're, they're there, they're in your face, they knock on their door, they call you. And he learned the behavior of man so he could pretend to really care. But he really only cared for his own interests. At the gate, he was looking for the distressed, discontented, and indebted ones that first came to his father when he was running, when David was running from Saul. 
and he tried to look like he really cared. Though, again, he only cared about himself because we don't ever read of him settling anybody's score but his own. He buttered people up with, your case is good and right. Yet I bet you at the end of the day, he couldn't remember the first case from the last case. He made it sound like David's office was closed to the people when he said, hey, there's no deputy of the king around you to hear you. He boasted about himself out loud as being a high and mighty judge. Oh, that I were made to be judged in the land. He made it sound like he was the only person on the planet that cared for others. If I was in charge, I would give him justice. He acted that way towards everybody, Democrat, Republican, Independent, and the new Socialist Party that's gaining speed. They all received the same jump from this elevated Messiah. And lastly, we're going to see when he went out to battle, he retreated on his mule that he rode and never killed anybody. Not exactly the picture of a rock star politician that he made himself out to be, but certainly the picture of many rock star politicians today. Verse 7, as I end my monologue. Now it came to pass after 40 years that Absalom said to the king, Please, let me go to Hebron and pay the vow which I made to the Lord. Now, David Gusick suggests that this 40 is the age of Absalom. I've never heard that, so it's possible. Please remember there was not a number system in the Hebrew language. And there are a few mistranslations from the original manuscripts, mostly in regards to numbers. <clears throat> if you look in the margin of your Bible right here, it probably says four years. Because back in chapter 5, it says David only reigned 40 years total. So this is not a 40 in verse 7. Not a big deal, unless it's 40, meaning Absalom is 40 years of age, which is possible. But I draw your attention to it anyway. Regardless of 40 being Absalom's age or 40 years later, he's been working and cooking this thing for a long time. Again, so where is David's men been? No one's taken notice? Or has God kind of put him out of sleep about this? So Absalom said to the king, please let me go to Hebron and pay the vow which I made to the Lord. Please notice he's asking his dad if he can engage in some type of spiritual activity before he stabs him in the back. For your servant took a vow while I dwelt at Gesher in Syria, saying, if the Lord indeed brings me back to Jerusalem, then I will serve the Lord. Now, I don't know if there's something hidden here. Just for the record, it seems Absalom is lying like a rug. Or, he really believes that God has made him the next king. And he made some vow saying, God, if you give me back to Jerusalem, I will stand up and I will be the king over all of Israel. So I don't know if that's what he's thinking. I think it's a long shot. Maybe he really believes this is the will of God. I don't know. Maybe his vow was, get me back in right standing and I'll do it. I doubt it. I think this is as cold and calculated as it gets. However, as I think about experiences in my own life, I think he justifiably thinks he's doing this for God. See, when we first moved to Santa Barbara, there was a church uprising there, and the people thought they were doing it for God, and the reality is they were doing it for the devil. When we'd been there a few years and the teaching style changed at the Calvary we had come from, the people revolted and were calling us, calling us, calling us. I'm glad we didn't have cell phones back then, man. I would have never got any sleep. And we sided with the pastor. And they were citing all these super spiritual reasons. And again, with the recent things in Calvary Chapel, people are sounding so religious. And yet the reality is, it, that's kind of what Absalom's doing here. So it's possible that he thinks this is God's will for his life. That this is, I, I think they're going to be a little surprised that all these people in Christianity that somehow rise up and think they're doing God's will when they divide a church. 
I think they're going to be a little surprised at Judgment Day. But I can see Absalom having that same mindset, even though he's wrong. Hebron, the place he's going to, is about a 45-minute taxi ride from Jerusalem. I know that because I've been there. It's interesting, is it not, how most inner turmoil always comes from those close by or those from the top or those who think they should be at the top. And the king's last words to him are, go in peace. Too bad he didn't believe it. So Absalom arose and went to Hebron. Totally clueless, it seems, as David sends him out in peace. But most conspiracies and takeovers usually are as Absalom is going to come back in war. David offers Absalom an olive leaf. Absalom's going to come back and run him out. Then Absalom sent spies. The Hebrew word for spies can also be slandered or backbite, even though we don't read any word that that's what they're doing. Throughout all the tribes of Israel, so from as far north with the tribe of Dan to as far south where he is in Hebron, all throughout the, the country, saying, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, so I guess that would be one trumpet would sound here and another trumpet here, and there'd be like the uh, 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 the thing in the 101 Dalmatians, uh, the midnight howl, bark thing, you know, one barks, the next one barks, next thing you know, the dogs are barking all across, you know, what? go watch the movie, you should go see it, it's a good one. Again, if he thinks, uh, saying as soon as you hear the trumpet, the sound of the trumpet, then you shall say Absalom reigns in Hebron. Again, if he, th he, th if he thinks he's doing God's will, he does not believe this is treason, and I only say this because of my own experience with people trying to divide, again, that somehow thought they were super spiritual. My advice to everyone is don't pick sides. Stay in the middle or side with those that God had put in place in the first place, and you'll never be wrong because that's the side of mercy and not the side of justice. And with Absalom went 200 men invited from Jerusalem, notice, and they went along innocently, and they did not know anything. And that's how conspiracies usually happen in the world. They start with one, and innocent ones go. And then it's like, well, since I'm here, I might as well listen and hear the guy out. And I, sadly, I believe that's how they happen in the church. starts with one, and then it's two, and then it's four. And then some go, no way, and then it's eight. Then Absalom sent for Ahithophel, the Gilanite. This is the strategic move on Absalom's part. David's counselor from his city, from Gilo, where he offered, while he offered sacrifices. So Absalom is doing deceitfully, I believe, just like politicians do today, when they walk into a church and say they're Christians and do some Christian things, and yet they stand for and vote the opposite way that they say they are. So this is, I think it's all appearance as he offers these sacrifices, seeking to look like he's some spiritual giant and doing and saying whatever it'll take to get the people to be on his side, just like politicians, some a lot of politicians today will do and say whatever it takes to get the vote. It's like, no, didn't you just say that over here to this group, and now you're saying something totally opposite to this group? Yeah, that's kind of what's happening here. And the conspiracy grew strong for the people of Absalom continually increased in number as people are following the loud ones and the crowds and not the Lord. So it started as 200 men in Hebron, as spies get the words out, are increasing in number by the second. So who is Ahithophel besides David's dear friend? He was one of his chief counselors. And it really troubled David that his friend had betrayed him and such. David wrote about this event in his life in Psalm 55, 12. This is what he said. For it is not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it. Nor is it one who hates me, who has exalted himself against me, then I could hide from him. 
but it was you, a man my equal, my companion and my acquaintance. We took sweet counsel together and walked to the house of God in the throng. That's T-H-R-O-N-G in the throng of people. And again in Psalm 41.9, Even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. You know, David said, if it's an enemy, yeah, I could roll with that. So how does a dear friend turn his back on an old friend like this? Well, I think, look at the church, happens like revolving doors. So how does it happen in the church just like it happened in Ahithophel's life? Well, easy. Same reason it can happen in our hearts. I believe Absalom is seeking to railroad his dad because bitterness and resentment, revenge, and unchecked sin is in his heart. And I think that's the same thing that's happening with Ahithophel here. So why does he invite Ahithophel, and why does Ahithophel, his trusted friend, come? Hmm, that deserves an answer. An inductive Bible study, because the ob uh, the observation would just be, oh well, Ahithophel was David's friend, and he came and sided with Absalom. We're moving on. No, what's the interpretation? Anybody know? Well, wow, <laughs> that was insightful. You care to share with us what insightful thing that was? No, that's it, so. What was it? That's what we got. Okay, hold your spot here. Look up these two verses. 2 Samuel 11, 3 and 2 Samuel 23, 34. I remember how excited I was when I first found this. I mean, this was crazy. 2 Samuel 11, 3. 2 Samuel 23, 34. Okay, 2 Samuel 11, 3. So David sent and acquired about the woman. Okay, this is the whole Bathsheba thing. And someone said, is that not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Now ask yourself, who is Bathsheba's dad? It says right there. What, everyone look at it, get your answer. The daughter of Eliam. So that would make Eliam her dad, because she's his Daughter. Okay. Excellent. Excellent. I knew we could get there. Okay. Now connect the dots. What is Ithophel's relationship to his granddaughter? Well, let's go to 2 Samuel 23, 34. Eliphalat, the son of Abishai, the son of, yeah, I can't mock a I, Eliam, the son of Ahithophel, the Gileanite. Now ask yourself, who is Eliam's father? Ahithophel. Ahithophel. You guys see that? Now connect the dots. What is Ahithophel's relationship to Bathsheba? Yeah, she's his granddaughter and he is her grandfather. Yes. Interesting. And see, that's what bitterness does. Holds on, lingers. Plus, if you have any of that in you, you're not supposed to take communion because you're doing it in an unworthy manner. And I, I hope that's nobody here. I hope that's for people online. That's why they don't come to church. Man, you got to let go of that stuff. Because the devil is using it against you and the flesh is using it against you. and You got to let go of that stuff. You got to move on, man. You'll never live a victorious life with that stuff in your life. Ever. Crazy, crazy look. Verse 13. Now a messenger came to David saying, the hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. So Absalom has put this whole thing in motion. The coup attempt is about to be leveled towards his David, his dad, at the, at, the, at the base of Jerusalem. And as David finds out, 
he's not going to stay and fight. He's going to leave the city so that innocent people don't die. See, that's what the man after God's own heart does. He knows his son, does he not? He knows his son's going to do something crazy. And yet, here's the crazy thing. Jerusalem was a very well-fortified city. It would be more than wanting to be a king for Absalom to get in. I mean, there's no doubt in my mind, as they showed up, David's mighty men could have went out there and whacked Absalom down within seconds, and it all would have been over. Watch for the word king as we read this. Whoever is writing 2 Samuel, they want everyone to know who the king is. A godly leader always protects the innocent and those who can't protect themselves. Verse 15. And the king's, and the king's servant said to the king, We are your servants, ready to do whatever my lord the king commands. I love this verse. Those are your true friends. Those are. When the chips are down, those that stay close by, these are those that you can always rely on. They don't cut and run. They dig in. Whatever you need, whatever we can do. Those that are closest to him, I believe, are those that David accepted when they first came to him that were distressed, discontented, and indebted men. That doesn't play out in all all situations because as Paul came to Corinth and brought the gospel to the people of Corinth and laid his life down for them in chapter in second Corinthians it says as Paul writes to them the more I love you it seems the less I am loved but those are carnal Christians there these here as they allowed God to change them these distressed, discontented, indebted men. They, these men saw qualities in David's life, both good and bad, and chose to follow after David and make him their captain because he was following after the Lord. Then the king, because the writer wants us to know that, went out with all his household after him. But the king left ten women, concubines. Ten of how many we don't know as legal sex therapists. That's really what a concubine was. Were left behind to keep the house. Why? I don't know. Other than fulfillment of the words of Nathan to him when he was first busted on his sin is my first guess. And the king went out with all the people after him and stopped at the outskirts. Then all his servants passed before him and all the watch, watch for who's missing. All the Cherophites, all the Pelophites, all the Gittites. 600 men who had followed him from Gath, a distressed, discontented, and dead one. They all pass before the king. I mean, here they are, the faithful from the beginning. Now, before we move on, who's missing from this picture? His family and fellow Jews. Please notice, these are all foreigners that are sticking with the king. Then the king said to Ittai, the Gittite, why are you also going with this? This man knows why. Watch for it. Return and remain with the king as David surrenders his will to God. For you are a foreigner and also an exile from your own place. In fact, you came only yesterday. Should I make you wander up and down with us today since I go I know not where? Return and take your brethren back. Mercy and truth be with you. And Ittai answered the king and said, As the Lord lives, and as my Lord the King lives, you are still the King in my eyes. And this is the same thing we thought in the coups that happened in the churches. That the person is in charge is still in charge. Surely in whatever place my Lord the King shall be, wherever, whether in death or life, even there also your servant will be. See, you and I can have the same type of effect on people. Remember how David had rebuked his men when they wanted to kill King Saul, but he also taught them. He taught them when they broke through the enemy lines, seeking to get him a drink of water, and how he would not drink them. He taught them numerous times in displaying mercy to others. He took up the charge and won numerous battles while seeking to follow the word of the Lord. They watched David strengthen himself in the Lord when everything was lost and everyone was in total despair. 
I mean, such is the man or woman that's thinking of walking the Spirit. You and I can have similar impact on those people that God has placed around us. So David said to Ittai, go and cross over. Then Ittai, the Gittite, and all his men, and all the little ones who were with him crossed over to go with David. And all the country wept with a loud voice. And all the people crossed over. So are they weeping because Absalom is taking over? Are they weeping because David is getting booted out? Doubt it. Are they weeping because, oh no, there's going to be a civil war and they're going to have to go to battle? Yeah, probably. The king himself also crossed over the brook Kidron. This is not the first time David had to flee and live as a fugitive in his own land. And all the people crossed over toward the way of the wilderness. Remember, those were the training years in David's life, out living out in the wilderness, learning and discovering about his God. Well, here he is again, an old man this time, heading out for new lessons from the Lord because no one gets a break on learning lessons from God. And if you're no longer learning them, then that means you're being stubborn. Man, you don't want to be there. There was Zadok also and all the Levites with them bearing the Ark of the Covenant of God. So finally some Jews, but not just any Jews, spiritual ones. Spiritual ones go the distance and don't give up when the chips are down. And they set down the ark. And Abiathar went up until all the people had finished crossing over from the city. Then the king, trusting the Lord again, said to Zadok, Carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he'll bring me back and show me both it and his dwelling place. But if he says thus, I have no delight in you anymore, David. Here I am. Let him do to me as seems good to him. So notice David's leaving judgment up to his God. He's putting his life squarely into the hands of the living God and trusting his God for the outcome. And so should we. I mean, whatever happens in our life, man, we're, we're in God's hand. God hasn't fallen asleep. And we, when you forget to look vertically, all you're going to do is look this way, and your whole life is now being lived out like a pagan. That's how worldly people live. Unsaved people live their life lived out on the plane of this world because that's all they got. You and I as Christians, we're called to look up and set our mind on things above where Christ is seated, where we realize, oh, my dad has everything in control. Oops, forgot about it for a second. This is elementary, basic, one-on-one Christianity. When you don't look up, you're sinning because the Bible says set your heart and mind on things above. James says, if you don't do it, the right things, you're sinning. You just got to look up. And that's where you get victory. You got it. There are many Psalms written during this season in David's life on the run here. Psalm 3, Psalm 63. If you cross-reference those, I'm sure you'll find a whole bunch more. But there's a great lesson here for us as individuals, as well as a great leadership quality to those in the church team. Commit your plans to God and rest in what's left as you rest in his hands. It's critical. It's critical. You want to get bummed out? Look this way. You want to get excited? Look up. It'll happen that way every time. A great picture of the full commitment of one's life to the Lord here. Why all we go with David here as they're trusting, as they're believing, as they're, notice, he's looking forward. Whatever God wants to do, he's looking forward. He ain't looking back. He ain't looking at the moment. And yet he's being run out of his palace. He's looking forward, not at the moment. If you want to look at the moment, that's how the world looks. And you're going to be defeated. David is looking forward. It's critical as he rests him. What a great place to be. The king also said to Zadok, the priest, are you not a seer? I mean, don't you hear divine words from God? Return to the city in peace and your two sons with you, Ahimaaz, your son, and Jonathan, the son of Abiathar. See, I will wait in the plains of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. Therefore, Zadok and Abiathar carried the ark of God back to Jerusalem and they remained there. So here is David the king, an old man fleeing from his son that wants to kill him barefoot and weeping as he goes down from Jerusalem, the high ground, he's going to make himself vulnerable as he leaves the high ground. 
So David went up by the ascent of the Mount of Olives and wept as he went. No doubt the consequences of his sin are probably drifting in and out of his thoughts every step he took. And he had his head covered and went barefoot and all the people who were with him covered their heads and went up weeping as they went up, signs of mourning and humility. Then someone told David, saying, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, I pray. Maybe this is just too much for him. O Lord, I pray. And he's asking and believing here, team. Turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. Now it happened when David had come to the top of the mountain where he worshipped God, long dash. Got to learn this team. Got to catch it right here. You got, but it has to be more than something I see in my with my eyes and learn in my mind. It's got to be something that drifted, drifted in my heart. Being cast out from the palace, the king. Okay, this is critical. The king is cast out. The man after God's own card is, is being run out of town. Everything is against him. His family is against him. His advisors are against him. The nation that he has delivered from all of these battles are against him. And he is literally running for his life without a second to spare. And yet what does he do? He worships. He's not freaking out about the issues of the problems. He's not trying to handle the situation. He's trying to take matters into his own hands. He's not trying to get vengeance and justice. And, and it's like, well, do this to me. I'm going to do this to you. He's doing none of that stuff. He worships God. He is taking time from his escape route to worship God. You see, if you go to Israel today, here's as you come up to Jerusalem, it's always a climb up. And so as he goes down to the ascent, down through the where the we would call the Garden of Sinai's today, and he goes up to the Mount of Olives, and he and moves up through towards the top. He, as he moves through the the, the the Mount of Olives, he's now able to look across and see Jerusalem, and he worships God. He doesn't have that much of a head start on him, but he stops and worships God. You got to get that. Because it works for him, and it'll work for you and me. It's biblical. It's theological. This is the picture of Colossians chapter 3. If then you've been raised with Christ, set your mind on things above. This is it. And as he looks out, he sees the city of David, the city he loved, the place he ruled. And now all of these things are running through his mind. As David, as David worships God, long pause, we got to catch this. This shouldn't have to be repeated in our lives anymore. We need the theology in the New Testament. Well, here's the picture. The next time you find yourself looking earthly, you better repent. You got to run. You got to plead for the blood of Jesus and dive at the cross, looking for forgiveness. And David worships God. There was Hushai the archite coming to meet him with his robe torn and dust on his head, and David said to him, "If you go with me." then you'll be a burden to me. Old man, I love you, and I know you can whack him and take him out with your cane, but you if you go with us, you're going to slow us down. You're going to be of greater service if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I was your father's servant previously, so I will now also be your servant. Then you may defeat the counsel of Ahithophel for me, as David sets one of many spies in place. I don't know if he calls them spies, but that's what I'm going to call them. And do, and do you not have Zadok and Abiathar, the priests, with you there? Therefore it will be that whatever you hear from the king's house, you shall tell to Zadok and Abiathar, the priests. Spies numbers two and threes are now awaiting Absalom's triumphal entry. So Hushai, David's friend, went into the city, and I'm sure he got out his sewing kit and sewed his robe back up and washed his face. And Absalom came into Jerusalem. Notice not a lot of time has passed. David stopping and worshiping the Lord on the mountain, that's a gutsy move. 
And so here comes Absalom. The one he's replaced is on the hill worshiping, getting his eyes off of the present, looking forward, looking up. And Abs slop on. Here he comes. He'll get his in the days to come. His reign as Ku King is not long. And I didn't check this out, but I'm 99.9% .9 positive it's not recorded in the reign of the kings. As a matter of fact, they're probably 100% positive. But, Father, we're thankful for the pictures and the stories and the theology. Lord, everything you put before us, God, help us to grab these lessons to learn them. Lord, to hide them down.